Everybody doing all right? Good, good. It's good to see you this morning. Um, and I'm going to preach from Psalm 142. Uh, but before I do that, I want to say this. And this is awkward for me to say because I don't want to um, seem to be drawing attention to myself. Um, <laughs> uh, but the reason I, I want to say this is because uh, we talked about this in prayer and, I, and I've asked people to, to pray for it. Um, and I want the stuff that I do besides being one of the pastors of this church to be something that we as a church kind of own. I, you know, I want, us, I, I want y'all to be able to feel like the, the other stuff that I do is like the other things we pray about in terms of honoring God in the world. Um, and so for those who haven't been at prayer and, and stuff that I've been asking folks to pray for, there's music that I've been working on for a long time uh, that God graciously allowed me to finish and has come out this week. And so I, I just want us to be able to celebrate that, that stuff together as a family and to just ask for your prayers that the Lord would use it for his glory, the folks would enjoy it, uh, the folks would buy it, amen, um, and not steal it. Uh, nah, but I, I just wanted to share that, ask for your prayers, and, and praise God for that. And we're going to spend some time in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we want to praise you, Lord, for your goodness to us and uh, for this time we can spend together in your Word as a church. Lord, we want everything that we do to be used for your glory. Father, even as we'll see in this psalm, even the hard things in our life, we want to be for your glory. So, Father, we pray you would speak to us in your word. You'd make your word clear. God, we pray no one would leave this service impressed with a singer or a player or a preacher, but people would leave impressed with you, God. Uh, so we pray uh, you'd speak to us, God. you help us to love you more, to see you more clearly, to trust you more trust you for the first time. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, most of y'all know that uh, I have two kids uh, who I talk about often in sermons because they seem to dominate my life when I'm at home. There's no escaping them because they're toddlers, and that's what happens. Uh, my four-year-old son, Q, um, when he was a baby, like when he was first born, uh, First of all, it was amazing. It was it was surreal uh, to see him be born. And um, and when he was born, did he look like me or you when he was born? I think when he was born, he looked like you with a black nose. Yeah. He looked like exactly like my wife, except with an African-American nose in the middle of his face. And um, one of the things that just made him a joy uh, from the first moment he was born is he was just really happy. He was happy. All the time. The happiest baby that I had met. I hadn't met a lot of babies at that point, but of all the ones I had met, he was really happy. And the only time that, uh, especially when he was around five, six months, really the only thing that would ever make him unhappy was uh, when it was time for him to go to sleep. So when we would put him down to go to sleep, all the happiness would go away, uh, and he would just be uh, screaming and sad, and we had to, uh, you know, ignore him in the name of Jesus so that he would be okay. Sometimes, you know, that he would be okay and so that we would be okay. Um, one of the things that, that occurred to me sometimes, though, was that he, he, in his little baby brain, he didn't really understand what's going on. So when he thinks you set me down and you walked out and closed the door, he's like, I'm abandoned. No one's here to attend to any of my needs. Like, what am I going to do now that my parents have abandoned me? Even though each night we came back the next morning, he, he wasn't learning that yet. But, but he felt abandoned, and he, and he cried out. And here's something that, that he learned that was a really important thing for babies to learn, is, is one day while he was uh, losing his mind, he somehow found his hand and, and started to put his hand in his mouth. And he started to suck on his hand, and it was this, like, self-soothing technique. So that even though he was sad that we left, even though we were kind of gone, there was this thing he did where he found a way to comfort himself. And here's what was interesting about it to me. It's not like that made us magically appear back in the room. It's not like uh, the stuff that he was sad about went away, but for a moment he was able to distract himself with his hand in his mouth, something that brought him joy and comfort. And I know for those of us uh, sitting here in this room who are adults, we have bigger problems than our parents leaving us in rooms by ourselves. We have bigger problems than sleeping on our own. But here's a, a thing that we do. Uh, we find these kind of coping mechanisms too, where... Um, because we don't want to feel the kind of pain and grief and difficulty that comes with everyday life that all of us have in our lives, what we'll do is we'll look for things like that that bring us comfort. We'll look for coping mechanisms. We'll look for ways to self-soothe. We'll look for things that can distract us 
And one of my questions is, you know, is that the best way for us to deal with our problems? By distracting ourselves for a moment so that we forget they're there. And I think when we look in Scripture, that's absolutely not the best way to deal with our problems, just to distract ourselves. And um, we, we can't spend our life depending on uh, coping mechanisms. We don't need just coping mechanisms and false gods and self-soothing methods. We don't have to turn there. And one of the reasons we don't have to turn there is because even in the midst of our hardest situations, we can find everything we need in God. We can turn to God because we can find everything that we need in God, even in the hardest situations. And I know Christians love to say stuff like, God is enough. God is all you need. But it doesn't always feel real because you're like, well, I need a sandwich right now, right? There are other stuff that's kind of right in front of us that feels like we really need. And we live in a fallen world with big issues. And so it feels strange to say God meets all of our need. We want to know what that actually really means when our world seems to be crashing down around us. Um, and here's the thing. That feeling of the world crashing down around us and having needs that need to be met, we see expressions of that all throughout God's Word. I, I think it's remarkable that the, that the songbook that we have in the Scripture, the Psalms, that so many of those songs are born out of real places of grief and discouragement and difficulty. So I want to look at Psalm 142. So why don't you turn there, Psalm 142. And what we'll see in Psalm 142 from David is that he is troubled and he's helpless and he's desperate and he's crying out to God for help. And while you turn, I'll give you a little background on David. Um, we all know who David is. David is one of the most well-known people in the history of the world, probably most famous for uh, his scrappy defeat of the giant Goliath. I say he just threw some rocks at him and slayed him. That's impressive. God had to be involved in that people. And when David did that, slayed that giant that no one else could slay, and, and he was mocking them, and he was mocking their God, the people really started to like David. They were like, this David dude seems all right. And so even though, um, so as they do that, while, while Saul is king, the people start to sing these songs about David, and they're like, you know, Saul is all right, but David's the man, and Saul can do whatever, but David can slay all these giants and all of this stuff. And so Saul uh, starts to feel a little jealous. And so Saul turns on David, right? And, and Saul doesn't like that David is more popular. He sees David as his enemy now. Now he's going to do everything he can to try to kill David. Uh, David was a war hero who turned into a fugitive and an enemy of the state. And so as he runs and he fears for his life, he's in a cave hiding out from Saul, hoping he doesn't get murdered. And this is what David has to say, Psalm 142. He cries out to God, and this is what he has to say. He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry if I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they're too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. I want to walk through this text, and I want to look at specifically what it teaches us about how God relates to us, who God is to us, even in the midst of hard times. And I think as we look at it, we'll see that, you know, even in times of horrible trouble, we can find everything that we need in God, everything that we need in God, which sounds strange. So let me, let me walk through that and show you what I mean. First thing I want to look at is God is our friend. Number one, God is our friend. We talk about troubled times, things we need. One thing that God is to us is he's our friend. Um, what comes to mind when you hear the word friend, when I say that? Maybe you're thinking of a friend of yours, a childhood friend, or a close friend that you have right now. Uh, what do you think makes a good friend? Just think about your best friends that you have. What, what do you think makes a good friend? Because they're funny, because they like the same stuff you do, uh, because they grew up in a similar place, because they love Jesus too. One of the main things that we think about when we think about what makes someone 
a good friend, is somebody who, who's there for us in, in hard times, right? Because there are times when you like, I thought they were my friend, and then I went through this, and there were nowhere to be found. And whenever that happens, people say, well, you must not really be my friend because a friend would be there in hard times, or a friend would really care about me, or I could call a friend and talk about stuff no matter when it is or what I'm dealing with. They don't kind of bounce on me when stuff gets difficult, someone who cares enough for you to walk through that. And the way that David prays, he assumes that as he's talking, that God listens. He seems confident that he has this relationship with God and that God actually cares about what's going on in his life, which is actually pretty amazing that the God of the universe cares about a shepherd fugitive, right? And, and David seems confident about that, that God is his friend. And, and skeptics, they may say, um, God caring about your troubles doesn't matter. What good is an invisible friend when your life is a mess? Or what good would it do for, for some God in the sky who you believe? What would it matter if they even like you? And for someone to have that perspective would only show that they don't really know who this God is. Because the fact that God is a friend, that he cares, the fact that God cares and he watches makes all the difference in the world. Whether or not someone cares about your situation changes how they respond when you bring it to them. All right? If someone doesn't care about your situation, it doesn't matter that you bring it to them. Right? If I spoke to President Obama and I told him my power was out, he probably is not going to do anything about that. He doesn't care. How about this? I, uh, I ordered something from um, an unknown, very big retailer, uh, but it rhymes with test try. Uh, so this particular place, unnamed, I ordered something, and I got to pick a delivery day. So I, mean, I talked to my wife. I was like, hey, what day works for you? Let's do it on this day. So we're waiting on that day. My wife has to go somewhere, so she makes someone else, makes sure someone else is at the house. They give us this window, like, between 9 a.m. and midnight. And so I'm like, man, they probably ain't going to be on time, but at least they gave us this window. You can't miss that. So I thought. Uh, they don't make the window. They actually did call, like, hey, we're going to be a little bit late. We're going to be a half hour behind. When they were about three hours behind, we called back, nothing, they're ignoring us. So I call, so I call this place, and I say, hey, I was supposed to get this delivered. And they were like, ah, I can't really help you. I'm going to pass you to the next person. Like, all right, this person can help you. This lady's like, oh, let me hear. Okay. She goes away for 15 minutes, like, hey, I figured out what to do. I'm going to pass you on to the next person. And so I am uh, praying in my heart that God would help me to remain a Christian while this goes on. And this happens over and over and over again. And every person that I talk to, even as I'm like, hey, you're the ninth person I've talked to. I just need someone to tell me how I can get the thing I ordered. To give me my money back. I'm never shopping there again. I'm a little bitter. And each person I talked to, they just kept passing me off to somebody else. And it was really clear to me that they didn't care. And so even as I would tell them everything that was going on, they were cutting me off with scripted responses like, hey, but I've been waiting on this. Sir, I can't really do anything about that. You got to call the warehouse. Uh, it was clear to me they didn't care. And when someone doesn't care about what you're saying, they don't really care to do anything about it. Right? If you bring a request to somebody who doesn't really care about your well-being or what's happening, they're not going to do anything to fix it. So, so for, for David to, to think of God as a friend who actually cares about what's going on in his life matters. Right? He knows that God is listening. And, and it means everything to him, especially when David's going to start talking about nobody else caring about what's going on in your life. I want you to imagine what your life would be like if God didn't care about your troubles. Imagine how that would change our relationship with God if he called himself father but didn't care about what happened in our life. Uh, David, as he writes this, is in urgent danger. His life's in jeopardy. It's like he's in a burning building. He's being chased down by dudes who want to kill him, and he's earnestly crying out for help. And I can imagine him in the cave just weeping and sweating and in great fear. Now, and I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 again. He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And as he prays, he knows that God is a friend, and he cares. Verse 6, he says, listen to my cry, for I'm in desperate need. When David says this, he says it all throughout the Psalms, like, God, listen to me. He's not like trying to convince God to care about him and listen to him. Uh, he's really saying, I know the kind of God you are. I know you listen to the prayers I'm talking right now. It's almost like he's tapping him on the shoulder. Like, God, th this is me talking. Listen to what I have to say. He says he's in desperate need. 
David knows this God. He knows he's promised to listen to his people. He's seen God do it in the past when uh, Israel was uh, enslaved in Egypt. It says the Lord heard their cry. Right? He, he heard their pain, he, he heard their cries, he heard as they called out to him for deliverance, and he delivered them. And he expected David, knowing God's track record, that he's a God who loves his people, expect God, expects God to do the same thing this time. Now, I wonder for those of us in this room, when we pray, whether or not we pray with that knowledge, that God is our friend who cares about us, and who loves us, and who listens to us. I wonder if you pray that way. I wonder if you pray expecting that God really cares about what you have to say. Know that he's intent on caring and loving for you. Is, is, when you pray, is it a real interaction with God or is it just like a ritual kind of throwing words up? Now, it changes when you know there's a real God who cares about you, who's listening. I mean, if you're a parent in this room and you have kids, think about what happens when your kid falls and hurts themselves and looks to you to help them. I'm not talking about when they fall and they fake cry because ain't nothing wrong. I mean, when they actually got hurt. So like 5% of the time. And they look to you, and they're crying, and they're injured, and, and they ask you for help. Can you imagine for a moment turning your back on them and not caring what they have to say? If, if your kid is actually injured or hurt, there's nothing that you're doing that would lead you to ignore them and not care what's going on with that. And if that's us as sinful human beings, imagine what God, the creator of all things, right? It changes the way we pray when we understand that God is a friend who cares? And we can learn from how David prays specifically because he says, I pour out my complaint before him. David is not in a spot where he only talks to God about good things. David is bringing up the worst things going on in his life, bringing them to God. He's airing his complaint. Now, I've, I've talked about this before, but I want to say it again. When David talks about um, pouring out his complaints, some of us may be afraid to pour out our complaints before God because we know Scripture tells us not to grumble and complain against each other. Or we know that Moses in the wilderness, um, God, uh, God's people were grumbling and complaining against him and against God. So we may say, I don't want to pour out my complaints before God. I'm not supposed to complain. But the way that David pours out his complaints here is, is, not, is not in that same kind of sinful way. David doesn't grumble and complain against God like the Israelites in the wilderness. Right. David is grumbling and he's, he's complaining to God. He doesn't complain in a way that puts God's character on trial. Right. Or put God's judgment in the question. He doesn't put God on trial. He actually does the opposite. David affirms God's goodness in the passage, affirms the one that God's the one he should go to. So, of course, it's fine for him to bring his complaints before God. Right. There's a difference between complaining to God and complaining about God or complaining in a way that assumes God is wrong. There's a difference between if somebody breaks in my house and I call the cops, complaining about them would be calling the cops like, why did y'all break in my house? Complaining to them would be saying, somebody broke in my house, and I understand you're the ones who can do something about that. That's what David does. Something terrible is going on. He brings that complaint before God because he understands he's the one who can do something about it and is promised to, right? This is the right way to pour out our complaints before God. But prayer is hard to understand sometimes when there's a God who knows all things who you're praying to. Because it may feel like sometimes, why even talk to him? Why pour out my complaints before him if he knows what's going on? There's a rapper who was, who was talking about this in a song, uh, like written to God. And he says, I think he's busy. Hold the line, please. Call me crazy. I thought maybe he could mind read. Right? And he goes through the song. He's like, why am I talking to God if he already knows what I'm thinking and saying? One way that Christians answer this sometimes, we'll say prayer is not really about like God responding to what you're saying. It's not about trying to get stuff from God. It's really just about aligning your will with God. And so prayer does help align our will with God. But that's just not how the Bible talks about prayer, like it's just a ritual just for your soul. Prayer is actually talking to a real God who listens and responds. It's not just an exercise for your spiritual formation. It does form you spiritually, but that's not all it's about. You're actually talking to a God who hears you. You're not just aligning your will with his. And if we get in a place where we take all the power out of prayer like it's just something for you, then we'll go pick something else to do. Because prayer is not always fun, right? But if there's an actual God who's listening to you, who responds to you, then it's worth every minute. We tell God because he hears us. He delights to hear from us. He calls us to talk to him. And so when we go through trouble, and we don't cry out to God about it. We're believing one of these three lies. We're believing either one, he can't really do anything about it. 
We might be believing two, he doesn't really care about it. Or we might be believing three, that we can just handle this on our own. All of those are lies. So I want you to think about the trouble or trials in your life recently and whether or not you've really taken those to God. So often we just don't. We just kind of endure it, grit our teeth. Um, we, we should take some, some notes from David. Verse 3, he says, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. So David's saying, hey, everywhere I walk, everywhere I look, Saul is hiding traps for me. He's trying to kill me. He tried to kill David twice while he was playing the harp for him, tried to throw a spear at him and pin him to the wall. He gave his daughter to, to, uh, to David on purpose to try to mess his life up. He tried to convince David, I mean, uh, Jonathan, who was David's best friend. He tried to convince him to kill him. And now Saul and his armies are pursuing him. There's danger at every turn. Everywhere he looks, it's a mess. And a lot of us can relate to David because we feel like in our lives, every area of my life is jacked up. I look at this, this isn't what I wanted. That, my job ain't what it, my relationships, my, everywhere we look, we, we feel like there's difficulty. And, and that's exactly what David is saying here. All right? He's saying, everywhere I look, it's a mess. But he's saying, when I feel like that and when my spirit is faint, when my spirit is weak, He's saying it's God who knows my way. It's God who knows what he's going through. God is never aloof and unaware. And he finds comfort in that. Verse 4. He says, look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Right? He's saying no one cares about him. Right? He's alone. He's separated from his wife, separated from his best friend. He's unwelcome in the kingdom. Everybody's trying to kill him. Yet he goes before God because he knows that God is his friend and he cares. And what a difference that makes when no one else seems to care about you. All right, we've been in times in our lives where it feels like nobody really cares about us. We're struggling and it seems like no one cares. When our friends have turned our back on us and our family has shunned us and our coworkers don't care about us and our neighbors don't even know who we are, God knows you and God cares for you and God hears your prayers and God knows how many hairs on your head and he knows the pain and turmoil you're experiencing. And in this sense, even when we're at our most lonely the believer who's a child of God is never alone. Never alone. God knows your way. God is with you. Right? And, and we should find great comfort in that. If David, who's in a cave, afraid for his life, separated from everything he knows and loves, can take uh, confidence and, and comfort in the fact that God knows and loves him, we should be able to too. And so often we waste our time and spend our lives trying to get other people to notice us and, and care about us wanting their attention, wanting their respect. And, and the truth is, right, there's, there's nowhere where we could ever really be alone, and the fact that God knows us and God cares for us should be good. One thing this should lead us to do, the fact that God is our friend, and it should lead us in this family not to be content for anybody to be lonely and kind of on the fringe. Right, the fact that we have a God who's a friend to us, who cares about us, who knows what's going on in our lives, that should lead us to, like God, take interest in one another. All right, Philippians 2, don't just look out for yourself, but for the interests of others. You should, when you notice someone who's a part of our family, even if it's just when we come together, we shouldn't be content for someone to be off in the corner by themselves, right? We, we should be uh, sincerely reaching out and building friendships, knowing that we have a God who's made himself our friend. Um, the truth is, without God as our friend, we, we would be abandoned, but, but we need more than a friend, somebody mentioned. We, we need more than God just to like us, or to be our friend, to care. We need him to be able to do something. And because we can find everything we, we need in God, even when it's rough, second thing I want to point out we see in this is that God is our protection. He's not just our friend, he's also our protection. I'm going to bring attention to something else he says in verse 4. He says, I have no refuge. As he's complaining about the difficult situation he's in, he says, I have no refuge. No refuge remains for me. When we hear that word and we read it in the Bible, we normally think of it automatically in like a metaphorical sense. Like he, he doesn't have anyone who cares about him. But when he, says, when he says this, he doesn't just mean he has nowhere to run to. He means literally he doesn't have a refuge. He doesn't have a home. He doesn't have shelter. He doesn't have anywhere to sleep. If he did, he wouldn't be in a cave. Now he's saying, I don't have any shelter. I'm physically exposed. And so as he's running, he doesn't have the option of checking into a hotel or staying at Eric and LB's Airbnb, which is why he's in a cave, because he doesn't have a, a shelter, right? 
So some may say, oh, we find everything we need in God. Can God be a house for us? But listen to what David says, verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. He said, I don't have a friend. I don't have a caregiver. You're my friend. You're my caregiver. Now he's saying, I don't have a refuge. You're my refuge. And I, and I really wanted to kind of meditate on this verse and think about it, uh, just to really think through what this actually means in real life so that it's not so abstract for us, what it means for God to be our refuge. He's not saying God is literally his physical shelter. He, he's saying in the midst of his lack of physical shelter, God is another kind of shelter for him. God is his refuge. And that means, I think, that uh, he's your protection from all the things that threaten you in the outside world. Right, when we think of our homes in 2016 in the United States of America, we often think of it as this very comfy place where all my stuff is. That's where all my movies are. I guess not movies because we don't have physical movies no more, but you know what I'm saying. My TV's in there, my, my house is in there, my couch is in there, my, my sh- you know, all my stuff. This is my home where I get to, you know, chill. Um, but the kind of main primary purpose of a home, of a house, is physical shelter and physical protection, protection from everything around us, from from weather and from thieves and from attackers. And David is saying, I don't have that. Listen to what he says in another psalm, uh, Psalm 57.1. He says, be merciful to me, O God, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. That's how he would have thought of refuge, as protection. So David is saying he'll hide in God. God is his protection from destruction. And he's saying his soul takes refuge in God. So God may not be a physical shelter for him, but he's saying my soul can take refuge in God. At the deepest part, at the core of his being, he finds his shelter in God. And I want to ask you, is God your refuge? Is God the one you look to and trust in for protection? One of my questions is what in your life, uh, this is how we know if God is our refuge, what is there in your life that if you lost it, you would feel exposed and vulnerable and unsafe? There's one way to know where you take refuge, right? What, what is that thing that if it was taken away, is it, is it your money? Is it your status? Is it your job? Or even it's where do you run in times of trouble? Where do you run to to feel safe? Is, is it a relationship or, or a job? Sometimes it's our own performance that we look to to feel safe. We feel unsafe when we feel like we're not good enough. And if there are other things that you run to or you trust in for protection, it doesn't sound like God is our refuge. And of course, there's this thing in our heart where we go back and forth trusting God at times, not trusting him at others. But making God our refuge is a posture of the heart. It's, it's a deep trust in God as our protection. It's a deep trust in him that even when hard stuff comes our way, that he's with us. David knows his life is in danger and he's distressed, and yet somehow he feels safe. He's hiding in a cave because murderers are chasing him, but somehow his soul feels safe. And that's a strange place to be, and it's this place for every Christian. What we're striving for, distressed yet peaceful, as Paul says, sorrowful yet rejoicing. And I'm not saying that uh, because God's our protection that he's not going to allow us to be hit by stuff. Um, he, he will. I mean, we see in Scripture he allows his people to suffer. Uh, one way I've thought about it is I have this uh, watch on, and the watch is waterproof. I'll tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the watch can't get wet. It doesn't mean if I, if I swim, then it's going to come up and there's just no water on it. That's impossible. That's some Jetson stuff right there. This will actually get wet. What it means that it's waterproof is even if it does get wet, it won't be destroyed. It's not going to get messed up. It's still going to work fine. Right? And so uh, when God says that he'll protect us or he'll keep us, that he's our refuge, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that storms won't hit us. It doesn't mean hard times won't come our way, but it does mean we won't be destroyed by it, right? It does mean that um, our soul can't be destroyed by difficult things coming our way. It does mean that God is protecting us, and that's important for us to understand. We should not take stuff in Scripture to mean God won't let us go through hard times. That's nowhere in the Bible, and as long as we believe that, we'll be confused about why God isn't keeping his word. But when we remember that God has, has said storms may hit us, but he'll protect us, he'll turn them for our good, that's helpful to remember. Romans 8 is such an amazing chapter in Scripture where he goes through all the worst things that could happen to us, and he's saying in the midst of that, God turns everything for our good, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's a protection of our souls in Christ, even in the midst of really tough stuff. That allows us to be able to trust him even when we don't really know 
what he's doing. So David is basically saying, like, I, I mean, I don't have physical shelter, but I do have God. And then it's good to remember that God is our greatest need. And when that need is met, all the other needs look smaller. Right? When our greatest need is met, being in God, knowing God, then everything else looks smaller. So I want to ask you again where you run to in troubled times. And I'm asking people here who know they're Christians and people who may not be sure whether or not they're Christians. Because it's very easy for us to run to false shelters, and it's really foolish to do that. No matter what the kind of false shelter refuge is, if that's in a person or that's an addiction, it's just always dangerous because false shelters lie to us. Where they seem like they're keeping us safe, but in the end they only leave us more exposed because they don't really protect us from destruction, they just make us think we are. So look into coping mechanisms. I mean, there's so much stuff we run to, like... Some of us, it's food. When we feel unsafe, we run to food. Just look for something to give us some pleasure. Right? That, that's, uh, that's porn for some people. Where it's like, ah, this, this is tough. I want to run to something that just makes me feel better. Sometimes that's, that's friends. Any kind of distractions from life storms. Right? When we run to those and make those our refuge, that's like it's storming outside and trying to live in a cardboard box and being convinced that that's going to protect you. It may make you feel safe, but at the end of the day, you're just exposed and you have no idea about it. God is calling us to find our refuge in him. One, another false shelter we'll run to sometimes is uh, our own reputation, how people think of us and see us. You know, we're at times where we feel like the worst thing that could happen to us is people knowing the stuff that's messed up about us. And we'll kind of make that our refuge. Like, I feel safe when people don't know the worst things about me. And it's very easy for us to go to that place. It's very easy for us to try to project this image of strength and perfection and godliness. But again, the only thing that does is leave us more exposed because it keeps us from chasing after the stuff that actually will keep us safe. Because here's what happens. When we treat that as our refuge, we will do anything to defend it. If, if people thinking well of you is the thing that you think you need above all other things, you will do anything to defend it, including lying, including cheating, including not letting anyone know that you messed up. And then not only is that bad for you, that's bad for our church community because we can easily end up just being a room full of people who are pretending to be perfect for everybody so no one can actually help anybody grow because we're all pretending like we got it all together. That's not the kind of family we want to be. We don't want to take refuge in any false shelters, including just looking good to other people. We want to do whatever we can to actually run to our real refuge, to trust in Christ. And sometimes that means going through difficult stuff, right? God is our refuge. We want to look to God as our refuge. Uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses speaks about some of the idols and false gods they're going after. And, and it says, uh, speaking of their idols, it says, when people come for them, it says, then he'll say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. Moses is saying, God is going to say, okay, if you want to worship these false gods, when people attack you, call out to them and see what they can do for you. Right? God is constantly calling our attention to him. We don't want to make that mistake of making something else our refuge other than God. Right? So God is our friend and God is our refuge. Number three, God is our treasure. Sometimes God is our treasure. We can find everything we need in God. We have a friend in God. We have shelter in God. Number three, we have treasure in God. Look at verse 5. He says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. David calls God his, his portion. And that word portion means like a share. So it could be like your share of an inheritance or your portion of what was left behind there, or a particular reward that's yours. So in his current situation, David is saying, you know, I'm away from my home. I'm no longer in the king's good graces. I don't have a portion. I don't have an inheritance. I don't have possessions. I don't have a share in anything. But he's saying, I don't have a share, but you're my portion. You're my treasure. You're my everything. Which is hard for us to think about in here sometimes. Um, hard to think about not having stuff and God replacing it. Um, a few years ago, I watched a documentary on ESPN. It was called Broke. And it was about uh, athletes who had millions and millions of dollars who ended up broke at some point. And so it was, I was watching it because my mind was blown. There were some dudes who had tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, and then at the current day were broke, had no money. And so for some people, it was just because they didn't really know how to manage their money that well. Other people lived a life just addicted to just houses and cars and everything that they could imagine. Some people were just trying to help their family out, weren't thinking about it well. Other people were just buying just an 
unusual amount of stuff after stuff after stuff. And I'm sure if you have $100 million, you're pretty sure you're never going to go broke. Like, I don't have $1 million. I don't have $2 million. I don't have three, and this could go on for a long time. A lot of millions, right? And you can kind of feel safe and secure. Like, I can buy this. I can buy that. I got $100 million. But one of the interesting things about watching that was it was a reminder that stuff like that that gives us the security, the stuff we would think of as our portion, as our treasure, it can be taken away. It can be overspent. It can be lost. It can be stolen. Right? But David is saying, I don't have a portion. God, you're my portion. And that can't be taken away. Paul the Apostle Philippians 4 talks about, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? He says, I know the secret to being content in all situations. And I think the secret for Paul, uh, that he could be poor or rich and he was content, is that he knew that all he needed was Christ. Like, I have Jesus. This is why he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have Jesus. And in Christ, I have everything that I need. One writer said this, the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. That's a great reminder. Reminder that our joy can't be contingent on our bank account. Our bank accounts are going to ebb and flow. We may go through seasons where we have more than we need, seasons where we have less than we need. But our joy can't be based on how financially stable we feel. Finances is the easiest place to look to for false security. Because as long as you have some money to be able to buy the things that you need, you think you're safe. It's so easy to turn money into our record. Right, so this is why it was important with, with uh, Jared and Tracy were up here talking about thinking of money in the right way, not as, a, as our refuge or the thing we build our entire lives around, but as a gift given us to steward well. But it's so easy to turn it into the wrong thing. But there's no amount of money that can't be blown or stolen, so we don't want to build our life on it. One of the ways we know whether or not we've looked to, to money instead of God is whether or not, um, but the way we know that whether or not God is our portion is I wonder if your pursuit of money and the stuff that money buys makes your pursuit of God look lame and lackluster. The fervency you run after money and the stuff that you want, I wonder if that pursuit takes more of your time and your imagination. Sometimes we are real creative, like, I can't get that now, but if I sell this and I get that and I get that, then, then I could get that in a year. You know what I'm saying? And we'll think and plot and think carefully and we'll pursue and spend time running after stuff. It's very easy for us to do that. I wonder if your pursuit of God has any of that kind of fervor and energy and imagination. Are you plotting about ways to know God more, to trust God more, to see God more clearly, right, to help others to know God? That's one way to know whether or not God is actually our portion. What are we chasing after? What are we hoping in? David also says that God is his portion in the land of the living. So he's saying in this life, God is all that I have, and he's all that I need. And here's the interesting thing. Some of us sometimes think, man, I need other stuff in this life, but I got God in the next. That's when God is my portion. So David is saying, right now, in the land of the living, God is my portion. Right now, where I have real physical needs and I have real stuff, he said, right now, God is my portion. Right now, God is my share. Right now, God is my inheritance and my reward, and God is enough. Man, that is challenging. That's challenging. I know that some of us, here today, uh, many of us don't really have everything that we need or we want materially right now, right? Maybe we'll hope for another job, we get paid more. Maybe we're just in a tough money spot. And, and I think it, it should be an encouragement to us when we hear what David says here about God being his portion. Or when we hear what, what Paul says about being content, whether he's rich or poor. Even what uh, said in Proverbs about, Lord, don't make me rich because then I'll be obsessed with money. Don't make me poor because then I'll steal so I can have more stuff, right? It's so clear in Scripture that our contentment, our pursuit of Jesus, uh, our living life, living the abundant life Christ purchased for us is not contingent on how much money we have, right? And truths like this can help us to, to grab a hold of that. So even when we feel like we're lacking, we can find everything we need in God. God is our friend, All right? We just talked about God being our treasure. Number four, last thing, God is our deliverer. God is our deliverer. We like, to, uh, we like stories about deliverers. We like superhero movies. We like, we like movies like Taken. Did they make a third Taken? It was just, they made a third one? Don't watch the other one. Just watch the first one. I'm not going to leave stuff alone. But movies like that we love because, you know, he gets this call and his daughter's in trouble. 
and it's like, and he's not even in the same country as her, and he's like, I have a particular set of skills, right? And he's like, just watch yourself, and they probably like, whatever, you know what I'm saying? And then he goes and karate chops an entire nation and gets his daughter back. And we love stories like that because it's like there's someone in a hopeless situation. They call out to someone, whether it's a superhero or Liam Neeson. They call out to him, and they're like, I know you're the one who can do something about it. And they come, and they do incredible things to, to deliver him. We love movies like that. And David, in a similar way, he's not placing a phone to his father. He's calling out to God for deliverance. So he's not only saying, you can sustain me while it's difficult. He's saying, you're the one who can keep it from being difficult. Right? So he's saying, you can sustain me while I'm here. You can be my friend, and you can be my shelter, and you can be my treasure, yet I'm still going to ask you to deliver me from this situation. Sometimes we think those things can't exist together. We have to either say, give me grace to endure this, or God, take this away. We should pray for both in all trials. Right? This is really hard, Lord. Help me to be able to navigate this and endure this, but also, Father, because you're the one who can deliver me from it, I'm praying you would. Listen to what David says, verse 6. He says, listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. David is a man who understands his weakness and his inability to deliver himself. I'm in desperate need. They're too strong for me. And he's telling God how he feels. He's at the end of himself. There's nothing he can do. And he's already seen God do the impossible in his life. Right, if God can give bears and giants and armies into his hands, then of course he can deliver him from a self-obsessed king. He knows God can do that, and God does deliver him, right? God does. But he feels that desperate need, and he cries out to God. But you notice he doesn't feel entitled to God doing it. Sometimes we ask God for stuff, and he's like, God, you better because you're supposed to. That's not what David does. David cries out for mercy, right? Mercy is um, not getting what you deserve. He says, God, be merciful to me. Show me mercy. He understands that God helps out of his, his own goodness, not because he's obligated. Anytime we're asking God to do anything for us, we're asking for mercy. Anything good we ask for, we're asking for mercy. Right? And David is doing that here. When um, we have friends who are in positions like this, you know when you talk to someone who's going through a hard time, and you don't even really know what to say it's so hard? You don't have the magic words to help people. I had a friend like this um, who died earlier this year, but for the last many years, I would talk to him, and it felt like every time we talked, there was some new thing. It was like, okay, but then I'm going to get this surgery, and then I'm going to be good. Oh, but then I'm going to get this. Ah, they figured out it's actually this. And it was like thing after thing after thing after thing after thing after thing. And then it just got to a point where as we talked, I just didn't know what to say. And one of the things that I thought about while reading a passage like this, because we do want to be able to encourage and comfort each other in hard times, one of the things when I see a passage like this, it reminds me, is sometimes the most helpful thing I can do for somebody is to help them to get to a place where they have this desperate need for God, right? It's to help them understand. When David says, help me because they're too strong for me, sometimes the most helpful thing we can do for each other is help each other realize that whatever's going on is too strong for us. We're in desperate need. The most helpful thing we can do is push each other to God. When there's a situation where I'm saying, I don't know the thing to say that helps you. It's helpful for me to say, but I know a God who knows exactly what to say. I know a God who can be your friend and your shelter and your treasure. And a God who's a deliverer. Sometimes the most helpful thing we can do is help people come to the end of themselves where they trust God to do what God is going to do. And it would be foolish for David to run to anyone else when he's seen God do what he says. Psalm 50, 15. Here's one of the reasons I want to push people towards God. God says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Right? Encouraging people to call out to this God who makes those kind of promises. God reveals himself over and over again as a deliverer. Because armies fall over and mountains bow down and winds and waves cease when God is present. And his track record is incredible. I want to push people towards that incredible God. Verse 7, this is why David says he wants to be delivered. He says, set me free from my prison that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. David wants to make clear as he talks to God why he wants him to be, be delivered because he wants to praise God's great name. He says, I want to be delivered for your glory. I want you to show yourself to be strong and powerful. How many times though, do we ask God for stuff? And we have God's glory not in mind at all. We're only thinking about ourselves. Right? 
David is praying because he wants to see God's glory. When I was a, a kid, like all kids, Christmas was the highlight of my year. I just could not wait for Christmas. And it's understandable. I mean, kids don't really have that much. They got like Cheerios, nap time, and Christmas. That's all they really had. And so when Christmas was coming up, I was so excited. I had asked for a big wheel. The little cars that you get in and drive, and my dad said no about 100 times. I never thought I was going to get this big wheel. And then it was there uh, on Christmas morning, and I could not contain my excitement. It was the best day of my life. Uh, at the time, I, I've gotten married stuff since then. It's been better. But at the time, it felt like the best day of my life because I had asked and asked and asked and asked, and they gave me what I asked for. Wouldn't it be weird, though, if that happened and I went back to school in, in a week or two, and someone said, what would you get for Christmas? And I was like... Huh, got some candy and a Power Ranger toy, and that was it. Wouldn't it be bizarre if I'd asked for it nonstop, and then it was given to me, and I just kind of forgot about it? Isn't it strange when we do that to God all the time? When we badger God as he's called us to, like, God, 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 please, can you deliver me from this? God, I'm asking for this, and then he gives it to us, and we act like he doesn't even exist? David is saying, look, I want to do this so you'll praise my name, so I can praise your name, because he wants God to be glorified for it. We need to pray that God would give us a similar heart, that we wouldn't look to God as someone who we just badger until he gives us something and we forget about him. It's all about him. And he's saying, then your people are going to gather around me, and we're going to celebrate your goodness to me. This is why we share testimonies of ways God has been good. That's why prayer last week, Charles got up here and talked about his son's ear being being fine because he, we prayed about that and then the Lord had answered the prayer and we could just celebrate God's goodness to him together. Let's make a habit of telling each other about the ways that God has been good to us. That's one way to keep yourself from forgetting to praise God for stuff. Make a point of telling other people about it. Have conversations about it. Sometimes it's good to write prayer requests down and look back at the stuff that God has answered so that we can remember. But whatever the case, we need to take steps to remember the ways that God answers our prayers because part of the purpose of him answering the prayer is his own glory. And when we rob God of the glory he deserves, we take some of the purpose out of God's goodness to us. He's good to us in part, so his name will be praised. You know, as I, as I look through this passage and, and David cries out to God for deliverance with urgency and sweating and distressed and knowing God could deliver him, um, it reminds me of somebody else. Reminds me of a distant relative of King David, the Lord Jesus. It reminds me of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's so distressed, he knows he's going to the cross, right? And he pleads with God, asks him if there's another way. He wants to be delivered from the pain that was ahead of him, and his anguish was so deep that he literally sweated blood. Like David Jesus poured out his complaint, and his spirit was faint. And like David, there were traps hidden for the Lord Jesus. Judas led his enemies to him. I mean, the fact that even the people you would call your friends and you loved and cared for, Judas would betray him, this hidden trap of a kiss on the cheek to show them who Jesus was so they could take Jesus and kill him. He was in a hard spot. And like David, the Lord Jesus was pursued by his enemies, and they were bloodthirsty, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted his death. And like David, Jesus was threatening the kingdoms of the men around him. Like David, Jesus was God's chosen king, and the, and the kings of the world around him wanted to kill him to get him out of the way. They saw him as a threat. And like David, Jesus was alone without his friends and abandoned even at his worst moment as he was captured and, and crucified. But unlike David, Jesus didn't run from his enemies. Unlike David, Jesus was captured and killed. And unlike David, Jesus knew when he came into the world that he would die this way and willingly did it. And unlike David, who did die eventually and stayed dead, Jesus got up from the grave. And unlike David, when Jesus died, he was accomplishing something. He didn't just passively die. He was actively paying for the sins of sinners like you and me. And unlike David, Jesus is God and can forgive us of our sins. And unlike David, Jesus didn't stop being king when he died. When Jesus died, it only, it only sought to display and show that he's king, and it furthered his reign over all the universe for all of eternity. Jesus is a lot like David, but Jesus is nothing like David. He's the eternal king, and his death and rescue was used by God for the salvation of sinners like us. Right? For Jesus to, to willingly submit himself to this same kind of suffering, knowing that he wouldn't be delivered, is incredible. 
Jesus died for sin so we wouldn't have to pay for our sin. Jesus was delivered over to death so that we would be delivered from death. The Lord Jesus is good. And if you're here today, you don't know Jesus, and you're wondering how you could ever pay for your sins and be good enough for God to love you. The good news is Jesus did all of that for us. Right? And he's called us to trust him. The main thing we need to be delivered from is the punishment for our sin. And God has provided a way for that, and that's in the Lord Jesus, who died and rose for sins. If you're here, you don't know Jesus, and you just want to know more about him, please come talk to us after the service. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to be able to say God is your friend, and God is your shelter, and God is your treasure, and God is your deliverer. Right? And that comes with relationship with him through the Lord Jesus. We can find everything we need in God, even deliverance from God. Right? God provides for all of our needs. Last thing I'll say is that um, when when I was a kid and stuff bad stuff would happen, and my parents were around, I always assumed my parents could solve the problem immediately. I wasn't gonna call my grandfather. I wasn't gonna call my friends. My parents are right here. It was a kind of a childlike faith that my parents could do anything. And my prayer is that God would give us that same childlike faith that whatever's going on in our lives, whatever kind of difficulties, whatever kind of hard times we're in, that we would have this kind of childlike faith that understands. I don't even know what all my needs are, but I know that I can find all of my needs in God. I know that God is my friend, and I know that God is my shelter and my treasure and my deliverer. My prayer is that he would push us to himself this week. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're so grateful uh, for your word. We're so grateful that you've been such a, a generous and giving and need-meeting God. Father, we pray that uh, those who are here who don't know you, Father, that you would show them the, the great way you've provided for us to know you, the way you've delivered us from sins, the way you, yeah, the, the way you've so graciously given us a way to know you. And Father, we pray that this week we, we would trust you more than we trust other stuff. We wouldn't run to false shelters, false treasures, or consider other friends more valuable than you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.